and welcome to the Institute of Policy Studies online forum with Singapore changemakers on the topic of corporate culture and policies. This event is the last of a series of three forums that's part of IPS current scenario planning project called Reimagining Singapore 2030. The project is centered around the question, how will we achieve happiness, prosperity and progress for our nation in 2030 and beyond? This in light of the current COVID-19 pandemic, but also mega trends that have been taking over the world before that in geopolitics, in terms of the global economy, in terms of science and technology, but also in terms of our concerns about how we are holding up as an egalitarian society, wanting to ensure that nobody is left behind. So to help us uh, think about change uh, at we've sort of lined up these forums in order to speak to people who are at it day in, day out. At each forum, we ask our special guests to talk about the change that has taken place in their respective domains over the recent years, the change they hope to see over the next decade, and then their reflections on that process of change-making uh, in Singapore. Um, we've already had two forums. So the first forum was on well-being and belonging, um, which featured discussions about racial and religious harmony, uh, aging, uh, and such. Then we've had a second forum on sustainability and livability, when we talked about coping with climate change and climate crisis, as well as the idea of social sustainability relishing and cherishing our historical heritage, but also the role of participatory design as we um, plan our city and get involved in creating a home that is livable and lovable. Now, here we are at the third forum, and this particular forum will focus on change-making in the corporate world of Singapore. It'll focus on the notions of promoting inclusive employment, to ensure that all who want to work are not held back or discriminated against because of perhaps their age, their gender, um, their race, um, and uh, you know, even their marital status. Uh, we also want to talk about promoting sustainable employment. Having gotten into the workplace, what is it that uh, we are, um, as corporate leaders, as, as corporate leaders out there, you do to ensure that your employees see a long career pathway uh, to fulfill their potential. So this afternoon, I am really pleased to be able to present to you a slate of four advocates in these areas of work to understand what they've done and how they've translated their ideas and convictions into reality. More importantly, we'd like to discuss what more they think needs to be done in the area of corporate culture and policies and practices so that we'll see a flourishing of Singapore's human capital in a world uh, that, over, that is still grappling with the pandemic, but looks forward to the day when we've seen the back of it. Since Sunday, we've also heard the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Hsien Loong, talk about various policy reforms towards the end of uh, promoting inclusive growth. So I think this will also be an opportunity to listen to what our four advocates may have to say about those medium-term plans. So it leaves me now to lead to uh, introduce them in speaking order. 
Our first panellist is Ms. Carrie Tan. You'll recognise her as a Member of Parliament for Nisun QRC. She's here today, however, more importantly, because she's the co-founder or founder of Daughters of Tomorrow, uh, where she's now a strategic advisor. Incorporated in 2014, seven years ago, DOT or DOT is a non-profit organisation that helps low-wage women achieve sustainable livelihoods and to help them be the engine of social mobility for their families. Uh, this is through DOT's skills training programs, uh, job matching, job bridging, bridging, and support programs. We'll hear more of that from Carrie later. The second panelist is former nominated Member of Parliament, Ms. Xia Yongyong. A lawyer by profession, we recognize her as a gem in Singapore for being an advocate for inclusive employment of people with disabilities and special needs. Ms. Chia joined the Society for the Physically Disabled, you'll see her logo there, uh, joined the board of, that, of SPD in 2004, served as its president from 2008 to 2020, and now is on its advisory panel. She's also a board member of SG Enable. Many will also recognize that she's a recipient of the Public Service Star, the Public Service Medal, and the President's Social Service Award for efforts in this field of work. The third panelist is Ms. Junie Fu, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Welfare Services, a multi-service charitable organization in Singapore. But I think more importantly, she is currently the President of the Singapore Council of women's organizations, an umbrella body that brings together several social service organizations working to uplift the, the lot of women in Singapore. Until 2018, Ms. Fu was actually in the finance and banking sector, uh, uh, but uh, um, even through that time, she was founding co-chair of an initiative of the Singapore Council of Women's Organizations called Board Agenda. Board Agenda has the goal of raising the awareness of economic benefits of helping more women to be members of boards of our corporate uh, uh, bodies in Singapore and the necessity therefore of harnessing uh, this human capital uh, by generating a solid uh, pipeline of senior women to take uh, decision-making positions in the corporate world, profit and non-profit in Singapore. She continues to be a member of the Young Women in Leadership Connect Connection, and she's a member of a, a newly formed body, which is called the Council for Board Diversity, um, the patron of which is uh, Singapore's president, Madam Halima Yaakob. We hope to more, hear more about the work of the council when uh, we speak to um, Junie. Last but not least, our fourth special panelist, is Mr. Sandy Montero. Mr. Montero is the founder of Rebel Girl, or better known as just Rebel, which is a city-based eatery that provides um, a very special model of employment and entrepreneurship for um, its team members. We, we look forward to hearing more about it, but it might be useful to know that Mr. Montero takes up this niche in the uh, difficult FNB sector uh, amidst this pandemic, from a background of having been a senior executive 
in the music world. He was regional president of the Universal Music Group that represents Tyler Swift, Katy Perry, Beatles, and more. So I think with that, uh, you know, um, uh, background in the corporate sector, it's interesting for him to now pivot to uh, 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 this um, space of FNB. And we'd love to hear more about what motivated him. He uh, has a very special premise undergirding Rebel, which is that the FNB sector holds out the promise of uh, um, a more equitable, more cooperative model of. Uh, hiring and partnering a workforce in order to grow a business. So as we, uh, you know, as I've sort of now introduced our four special panelists, um, panelists, I hope you'll allow me to just kick off uh, this afternoon's program by asking you um, a, a, a quick question, right? Uh, can I invite you to talk to us about the most significant changes that have taken place in your area of work or activism over the past years. What role did you play? What role did your organization play? And in the case of Sandy, I think talk to us in this, in your case about what motivated you to start Rebel and what's different about it. So maybe uh, I could invite Carrie to kick us off. Carrie, please. Hi, Julian. Hi, afternoon, everyone. Really glad to be on this panel to share a lot of my thoughts, uh, hopefully, about um, this topic, which I've been very passionate about. Um, so Daughters of Tomorrow, in the past few years, uh, in, in our work trying to um, access um, and bridge underprivileged women uh, with jobs that they could juggle um, with their care responsibilities at home, uh, it was a very, very uh, arduous process right, uh, and journey. But uh, round about in 2018, uh, we figured, you know, uh, through the stories of the women that one of the key barriers uh, to these women uh, attaining jobs and holding down jobs in the sectors such as F&B, retail, hospitality, um, service, etc., which they were very eligible for, uh, was the fact that these companies operated um, in shift work. So they would have to like morning, afternoon, evening shift, and often the shift allocation is in constant flux uh, throughout the week. Uh, and that presented a tremendous uh, difficulty and challenge for them in terms of uh, arranging for their um, caregiving needs and childcare needs at home. So Ron, um, I think it was about 2018, 2019 when we discovered this problem, we decided to try to uh, influence um, our employer partners to adopt uh, what we call core and stable scheduling, which was to uh, allocate a fixed shift for this employee uh, and have that shift uh, be a permanent shift so she can also have uh, permanent um, arrangements for her childcare. Um, in the beginning, we met with a lot of resistance because uh, it's such a new practice um, and companies had questions about, you know, is it fair to other employees, etc. Uh, and we drew on research um, that uh, GAP, the international uh, clothing label, has done in other parts of the world um, and their pilots to to show to employers that it can be done. And a few brave companies uh, decided to, to take it on and try it. Um, and I think in a short few months, if I didn't remember wrongly, the, the numbers evade me now, but uh, I, I think we got really good traction. We had about like 40 or 70 employer partners who adopted core and stable scheduling across uh, many sectors who traditionally functioned on um, rotating shift work. 
Uh, and this really enabled the women to take up and sustain those jobs. And this is one of the key milestones that um, I'm very proud of uh, in terms of um, getting employers to do and change and believe that they could do. Um, and I think the, the organization now has created a momentum and they're continually uh, enrolling new companies like this. Sephora, the makeup company, has, has adopted something like this. Uh, Vanguard Healthcare has adopted this. Um, and many um, local F&B chains also have adopted this. Um, and uh, so that is that is one of the key milestones that it is possible, right? Um, and I think uh, in in now my capacity as a as a as a member of parliament uh, and strategy advisor to DOT, um, I I'm not so much involved in in DOT's activities anymore on the operational level, um, but I'm continuing to plug myself into the corporate um, and HR community uh, to propagate um, the different best practices um, that uh, has come across my attention. Uh, when speaking with various SMEs to to try and um, get more SMEs onto the bandwagon of progressive workplace uh, practices. All right, my time is up. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Carrie. Um, now uh, it's over to uh, Yong Yong. Uh, you know, can you do the same and share with us, you know, some of the milestones uh, in your advocacy work with uh, people with disabilities, much like Carrie shared with. Uh, the work she's done with low-wage uh, disadvantaged women. So over to you, Yong Yong. Thank you, Jillian, and good afternoon, everyone. I think I'd like to start with a piece of good news, and that was, if you don't already know, on the 27th of August, just a few days ago, 88 companies were awarded the inaugural enabling mark by President Halima Yaakob. And that is the first national accreditation that benchmarks and recognizes organizations that for the practices and outcomes in disability inclusive employment. Now, why is that such a happy event? Well, because it signals to us that employers are coming forward, but more than that, it signals to us that conditions are now changing for more inclusive employment. It just, as I was preparing for this, I can't help but remember how it was when I was trying to get a job uh, upon being a newly qualified lawyer. I couldn't get a job, I was jobless for six months. I think I was one of the last in my class to get a job. And primarily the issues were with, um, you know, biases, with infrastructure barriers, and with employment constraints, given the nature of uh, the legal sector at that point in time. But now, what has happened? What have we achieved just over the last 30, 40 years? We share the slide, and as you look at the slide, I will just go on very quickly. I think we've achieved greater acceptance with public education efforts. And that's really been done a lot by SPD, SGE, and a lot of other NCSS and many of our SSA uh, partners. We have definitely enjoyed, we are definitely enjoy uh, increased physical and transport accessibility. Uh, you see people on wheelchair and with different kinds of disability in public transport, and you will see us in different buildings. Um, Greater access to education, 2019, I was part of the compulsory uh, education implementation committee, which um, extends compulsory education to children with disabilities. There is now, unlike in the early days, an ecosystem 
to support employment. And this is an initiative of SGE and government-funded agencies such as SED, MINES, and ARC, where we work together and we help to train and place persons with disabilities in open employment. You see that there are many government schemes uh, asking, um, supporting employment of persons with disabilities. Uh, there, are, there is a lot of support and advice for job redesign, for job attachments, if you're not ready to employ, offer internships, for job placement, and even after you have employed uh, anyone with a disability, you can get job support from the professionals and of course from the government. So what, what am I sharing all this? I'm sharing that the world ahead is something that is exciting for us because the way is being paved. How is this actually possible? If we look at the significant national milestones over the past years, we've got the enabling master plans. And I'm very proud to say that we, we enacted, no, we implemented our enabling master plan even before the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities was launched. So that was what we had starting 2019, uh, sorry, 2005, the first, we're in the third now, and we are working on the fourth. In 2013, July, we signed the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. This has greatly impacted the um, employment landscape, and I think it's given us a lot of optimism on how we can move ahead. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Yong Yong, and uh, I hope that we'll have um, the opportunity to kind of delve deeper into that journey. Um, now, let's uh, um, uh, pass the time over to Juni, and uh, Juni, tell us uh, what's been happening in your space, especially as you look at uh, greater representation of women in boardrooms. Over to you, Juni. Okay. Thank you, Jilin, and, and, and thank you for inviting me um, to, to talk about this um, you, you spoke specifically about board agenda, so I'm going to share a little bit about board agenda and how it all came about. And um, we were talking about how I was watching grass grow. <laughs> um, well, the board agenda was established in, um, uh, really launched in 2011. But before that, we did some groundwork because... Um, the numbers were showing that we were sorely lacking in female representation on corporate boards. So at that time, when we first started, it was about 6.4%. And um, we, we were wondering, how can this be, you know, with, with um, uh, women so educated and, and having so much work experience? And so we decided to, to advocate for more, to have more female representation on boards and, and also, um, to really show the benefits, it's really beneficial. It's a, it's a talent retention issue. It's a human capital issue, isn't it? Especially when um, in Singapore, it's 50-50, it's our female representation in the workforce has also grown from strength to strength. Um, in fact, in 2021, this year, the Grant Thornton um, report showed that 33% um, of women were in senior management positions. But if you look at the board representation, it is still sorely lacking. It's like 18, 18%. So it doesn't really translate into board representation. 
Uh, at that time, it was far worse. And so we launched it. And to be really honest with you, one of the first um, uh, group of people to resist this were women. Yes, and they said, Juni, why are you doing this? Why don't you help the poor? And, and yes, <laughs> um, but I, I really felt at that time and, and still now that, you know, with more women in decision-making, um, it really changes the landscape. Um, you know, like inclusive policies, inclusive uh, human resource policies, you know, like Carrie, what you were talking about and even what Yong Yong was saying, that um, women tend to look at things differently and just add enrich that whole uh, experience on the board. So, so that's what Board Agenda has been doing for the past 10 years. Uh, the numbers have moved, although they have moved rather slowly. And we are at about 18% now. So I'll just stop there <laughs> as we invite more yeah, questions and maybe comments and I'll hand it over back to you, Jillian. Thank you, Junie. I hope there'll be opportunity to talk more about not just women uh, in boardrooms, but at senior management level, as well as the general uh, kind of uh, discussion about uh, women in the workplace. And I think, uh, uh, you know, I'd invite Carrie to weigh in, Yong Yong uh, as well. But no doubt, Sandy, you're also going to be able to come in on that conversation. Meanwhile, let's uh, cast the time over to you, Sandy, to talk a little bit about what uh, motivated you to start Rebel. What's different about it? What is so rebellious about Rebel? <laughs> over to you, Sandy. Thanks, Jilin. Thank you for the invitation to be part of this uh, esteemed uh, group. Um, the story for Rebel actually began more than 20 years ago. I mean, from a young boy washing dishes in a restaurant in Sydney to pay my university fees, uh, and then having the opportunity or a fortunate sequence of events to have two people who identified something in me that I didn't see in myself um, that created a pathway for me to become the president of the largest music company in the world, running one of the biggest geographical regions of that company. Um, so Rebel started from an idea of creating an entrepreneurship platform for young people. So the same way somebody created the opportunity for me could I create something that would create a runway for five, 10, 50, 100 people, 1,000 people? Um, and if they had the drive and motivation, they could achieve far more than I have ever done. Um, and it's like a little bit like a circular kind of paid forward thing. Um, so the idea behind Rebel was looking at the FMB business and thinking there were so many shortcomings with regards to fairness. Um, rich people who had the money would invest in, you know, in franchise or brands, uh, and they would sit back and watch their money grow. In the meantime, the people that actually did all the work, right, um, they would work their boots off um, trying to, to earn money for their families. And they needed the jobs and they worked hard because they needed the money. Um, but if they served 100 customers a day, they got paid $7 an hour. If they served 1,000 customers a day, they got paid $7 an hour. If it was 100,000 customers a day, they would get $7 an hour. But in the meantime, the investors who all they did was just put money in there would reap all the benefits. So there was an intrinsic sense of, there must be a better way. There must be a better way to do this. And that was where the whole idea of, of what Rebel became. 
So Rebel wanted to create a platform that treated the employees differently. So rather than just having the employees who worked on an hourly wage, I wanted to create something where if they had the drive and motivation, we would create a program that would make them part of the ownership of the brand. So we weren't interested in getting franchisees who hired people just to work for them. We wanted the employees to be part of the franchise ownership. Um, and the more successful we are, the more successful they were, the more opportunities would, would come up from there. Uh, the second part was treating our investors as investors as a group as a whole, which means you don't just buy a franchise and you run your franchise and then Jillian will buy a franchise and she runs a franchise and neither cares whether the other franchisee lives or dies. They just want to make sure that they survive. By being all co-owners of the, of the brand in total, every investor cares about the success of the brand as a whole. And the third part was regards with suppliers. Um, so everybody in the FMB business wants to run a cutthroat business where how much is a carton of eggs? If your price is 10 cents less than the other person, thank you very much. Thank you for the last two years of relationship. I'm now going to the cheaper person. Um, why is that the right way to do it? Why can't the suppliers be part of the, of the program to, to help the brand succeed? And you in turn work to make sure that the, the supplier succeeds. Um, and that's where Rebel treats its suppliers as partners. Um, and one of the most active partners we have is in you know, meat-free development. And Corn has come in as one of our big supporters to help the brand grow. So rather than just being um, an F&B business, we want to be an F&B business with a difference. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And that's sort of really cutting to exactly precisely how you've de designed the business uh, to how uh, employees are remunerated and they're not employees, the kind of part of the uh, whole enterprise and entrepreneurial team. And then you're looking at how uh, investors view themselves and your connection with suppliers as well. So thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, I, I hope that, uh, you know, the audience out there, you're sort of feeling, uh, getting a sense of uh, how special this group is and what they are trying to do is also kind of an interesting swimming against the tide type of endeavor. Um, and so I'm going to invite you to share your comments as well as your questions. Uh, as I go to another set of uh, questions with uh, the panelists, I hope that you'll share with us yours so that I can cast them to our panelists and have them engage you directly. So please go right ahead and uh, uh, send us your comments and questions. Um, meanwhile, Carrie, um, I have another question, and this is really tied to our project Reimagining Singapore 2030. So if we reimagine re re Singapore for mm. uh, low-wage workers, disadvantaged women, women who are nonetheless wanting to be part of the engine of social mobility for their families, what is that vision that you have? And what are one or two things that might uh, that you might have to uh, blow away, blast out of the way, in order to achieve that vision? Feel free, mm. let it rip, Gary. Yep, I, I love that question, um, and I think one of the key things that I'm I'm really watching very closely, and, and I think people are cognizant about, is the fact that we have an aging society, um, and what that presents to us is that uh, women like myself in the sandwich generation, where we could have kids, we have elders. Uh, increasingly going to feel the pressure from a what I call a care and career conflict, uh, where we're expected to be 
at work, we're expected to show up at our best at work, but we're also, you know, trying to show up for our families, etc. And of course, uh, you know, there's a whole conversation about ungendering care, so that men also do some of this care work. Um, but I think the 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 uh, main barrier here, I think, is this current paradigm where uh, we tend to we have a society or an economic system that tends to view um, workers as um, uh, um, you know, producing outputs, you know, and units of outputs. Um, and I think we, we really need to shift away from that paradigm to think about how we can harness the best of people, not just based on what they're doing or producing, but based on the value simply by who they are. And I think Sandy shared a beautiful story about him washing dishes in Sydney and somebody saw something amazing in him. And that was not by a function of what he did. He was washing dishes but it was a function of who he, who he is or who he was that got the attention. And we see so many stories um, in, in Daughters of Tomorrow's community, in, in our residence community, where you know, when a company hires someone, uh, not just based on what they do, uh, but something special in them, their personality, um, the way they, they approach life, the way they approach working with others. Um, I think that is where, this is where the true value uh, to businesses come in. Uh, and I've spoken to many HR professionals and or team managers or leaders. Uh, and across, you know, I think we're quite familiar that the most um, draining thing that you have to do or manage at the workplace is people dynamics. And people dynamics is often not stemming out of what they do because they could do their job really well, but because how, of how they are uh, relating and interacting with one another. Um, and managers spend so much time trying to mediate that um, and I think the, the next lap of really um, fully harnessing and, and tapping on unleashing our human capital potential is really how can we grow and nurture our people based on, uh, you know, certain intelligences, um, certain uh, aspects of who they are, rather than over-focus on training the hard skills, which at the end of the day, at some point down in the future, machines can take over those things. <laughs> so, so what it means to be human and what it means to be, bring our humanity um, our whole person and what we can contribute based on our roles and our lives to the jobs that we're doing, I think would be would be um, I think a transformation that I'm hoping that the corporate sector can spend some time thinking about um, and pondering. Thank you, Carrie. At this point, panelists, is there anything you'd like to say to what Carrie said? Can uh, employers actually see the person in the uh, employee? Uh, and uh, I think Sandy. Please jump in first because you were referred to, and yeah, I, mean, I think that you have a model that allows for this, right? So, um, you know, over to you, Sandy. It, it's a very interesting point because you are only limited by the opportunity that you're given. So, at the time when we were launching Rebel, it was at the peak of, of business boom in, in the FMB business. This is prior to COVID. Trying to hire staff was next to impossible, that I was so desperate. Um, that I just took anybody, anybody, if you had the desire, we would give you the chance and make it work for you. Many a time, they just came because they needed a job. They didn't actually see what the opportunity was, right? We managed to scrape together a launch team. Um, six months after we launched Rebel, Rebel is named as one of the top uh, sandwich shops in Singapore by Time Out Magazine, something that we've held for three years in a row. Um, we have an average rating of 4.7 or 4.8 stars on every food platform or even on Google search. I mean, Rebel has done ridiculously well. 
And when you think more than 80% of my staff had zero FMB experience to begin with, and now these guys are best in class. So it, it really is about giving people the chance to be more than they see themselves to be. Um, you know, and exactly what Carrie is saying. Yeah. And uh, Yong Yong, do you find that among the employers who've just been accredited, uh, recognized for uh, their part in trying to foster inclusive growth, do you have any stories of employers or organizations looking well past the disabilities of the people that you're serving at SPD? Yes, indeed. I think um, first they had the mindset of innovation and they were prepared to say, not just that, uh, okay, we are taking in people with, this, uh, with abilities. I think what was important was they recognized that they were taking in uh, employees with disabilities. I think that important recognition allowed them to innovate the work processes and to even use and harness technology or create apps and so on, in which they were able to facilitate the work of the employees. And of course, there were other employers who went, who looked at an employee and saw their potential beyond just the usual ironing clothes, washing of dishes, and they were able to go beyond uh, their starting roles into slightly uh, like supervisory roles and so on. It started because the employers had a vision and an ambition for the employees. And you know what? It made business sense. I've never had an employer who came and say that, you know, we did it right, but we, we, we lost money. There may well have been unfortunate cases, but uh, most of those who came to us have actually said it made a lot of business sense. So oh. it isn't just charity. Right, that's important because we've had one, com one question come through Facebook now. Uh, and I think maybe you can continue uh, on that vein. The question is, how do we avoid tokenism when we talk about diversity and inclusion in the corporate setting? So Yong Yong, say just a little bit more about how, uh, you know, with that ambition, and vision as well as innovation. Some of these companies have not just done a tokenistic uh, kind of uh, nod and gesture about including people with disabilities. Uh, have the beneficiaries found that these are real jobs creating real value uh, because of some of that willingness to kind of uh, take them seriously. Uh, and then I'll ask Juni to jump in. Yong Yong, kick us off. Yes, I think, I think that willingness to be taken seriously is indeed very important and very, very motivating. People know when they are taken, not taken seriously. People know when it's tokenism. And when we reach out to employers and when we train our folks to uh, take on certain jobs, we work very closely with employers to ensure or to create a culture of acceptance and understanding and a culture of cooperation. So the last thing that we want is to have a failed employment. And what again, I want to ensure, uh, assure employers is you don't have to walk this journey alone mm -hmm. because you can always reach out and there will be resources. And you don't have to say, I didn't know what to do. Oh. Thank you, Yong Yong. Juni, over to uh, you, Valerie, yes. Valerie's question. <laughs> <laughs> How to avoid tokenism? Uh, um, uh, you know, I think you've mentioned that there's been progress, 
but are people just sort of trying to check the boxes? Yes, and, and I think um, we really should avoid that. And and the premise really is the best person for the job. I think that that's that's important. It's not about oh, I need to hire a female. Oh, I need to hire somebody who is um, uh, physically disabled. You know that. But really, the person who comes, even if she's on a wheelchair, right, and she's good, let's hire her, him or her. And, and I like what Sandy mentioned about you're only limited by the opportunities that you're given. So, so, so for us or any one of the participants who are listening in, if you are in a position to hire, I think we should really hire inclusively. I think that's it. It's 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 about um, giving opportunities so that um, uh, the capable um, ones who are can can get a break in life, and sometimes that's what people need a break in life. Really, mm-hmm. another thing about the organizations, Yong Yong, you were talking about how um, um, now eighty organizations have been accredited. So we did a study with uh, TAFEP, we, uh, as in Board Agenda and TAFEP, uh, some time ago. And um, 25 senior ladies um, said the same thing. It was their organization that enabled them to succeed. So the organizations recognized their capabilities and built career pathways around their seasons of life. So they were able to have children, build their family, and also succeed in their job roles. And I think um, organizations should really look at that. I mean, reimagining 2030, right? As organizations, we should really look at that. So it's not about building more walls. It's about building longer tables where more people can have a seat at the table. Right. Yes. Just, just yes. want to add Thank to this thing of tokenism. Please. Um, it, it flows both ways. So if the employee thinks that they're just there for a token, mm. they behave like they're there for a token. If the mm. company operates like they're there because they will be given recognition for, for doing this, they will do it only for the recognition that they've done this. The true, the true value of this opportunity is hunger. If the employee has the hunger to succeed, if the company has the hunger to develop an opportunity, that is what will drive success. Tokenism will never drive success. Right. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, there's yet another question, this time uh, directed at uh, uh, Junie, um, because our starting pre- uh, premise is that actually with greater gender diversity and representation of women on boards, that there would be more inclusive uh, you know, uh, policies, right, uh, from HR to everything else. Um, but uh, a question from Eve Lowe is, um, hello, is that just an assumption that is a bit uh, uh, wobbly? Why do we assume that uh, by having more women that they themselves will take on what she said, this noble mission of uh, um, ensuring that policies of the organization are designed to be inclusive as well. So Juni, kick us off on that one, please. Okay, well, thank you for the question. Um, you see, it has to be a lady to ask the question. <laughs> we tend to be um, uh, more hard on ourselves, I must say, 
you know, women tend to be hard on other women. Uh, I think that's that's another panel discussion. But um, uh, I, I think with um, women having that, uh, we do hope that uh, in terms of uh, decision making or policy making for HR, for example, uh, they would also give some thought and consideration in how to have flexi working hours, um, uh, should, should we also have childcare leave together with parental care leave? Can we put them together? Do we have to um, uh, discriminate against um, single ladies? You know, because, because there are some um, older uh, single ladies who are giving care to their elderly parents and they, they do not have that leave there's no childcare leave there's no parental care leave so so we're really hoping that uh, with more women you know for example in the hr sphere you know they can also give thought into that and and recommend policies that would um, help uh, women who are giving care to the elderly as well so so of course an assumption <laughs> so over to carrie who's yeah uh, Dying to jump in on this, I mean, is this a false premise that uh, having women, they'd be more attuned, more empathetic uh, well, to what women uh, need? Or do you see enlightened men also taking up this agenda? So, uh, uh, Carrie? <laughs> well, I, I wasn't so much going to comment on that. Uh, I was going to comment on something uh, that Juni said earlier, but uh, this question kind of is a really good segue to that. Uh, Juni said earlier that, hey, you know, some people just need a break in life. Uh, and when she said it, it was in the context of what we were discussing before, that people need um, someone to believe in them and to give them an opportunity. But uh, related to this, this whole piece about um, flexible work arrangements and leave, leave to care for family, etc. It's also the same thing, like some people just need a break <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> right? Because of care responsibilities, how overwhelming it can be. Um, because of mental health. I think we, we know already by now that uh, one in seven people um, in any given, I think in our society is, is going to experience a mental health condition at some point uh, in their lives, right? And amongst the uh, single mothers, single parents that we've come across, one in four have struggled with a mental health uh, 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 problem, have had mental health struggles. Right. Um, and I think this thing about uh, giving your team members a break, how do we do it? I mean, all employers want to do it, but why is it so difficult? Right. Um, and I just wanted to share uh, an example um, from when I was running DOT and it, we still function today, where everybody had the flexibility to work anytime they wanted, anywhere they wanted. And then when we started to grow a little bit bigger, we realized that the teams needed to meet. Um, we would say that, hey, you know, each team just picks one day in a week that you want to come into office. The rest of the time, you know, we could just remote work. Um, and it worked really well, beautifully for our organization because whenever somebody needed to take some time off to care for something in their lives, the other team members would just back them up. They would, they would chip in. Um, and I had a, a close friend who was running a different organization and they were struggling to make this possible because like some somehow, you know, the corporate policy was such that only uh, certain people uh, were, uh, were allowed uh, to work from home. But this was pre-COVID days, right? Um, and then other, other team members were not, we don't feel very balanced about it. 
You know, so I thought that um, the lesson from here is is really important that if we wanted to implement flexibility, it has to be extended across the entire organization so that the employees don't feel like they're getting the shorter end of the stick because they're single. <laughs> so when married people with kids go on leave, then they have to cover more work. You know, so it has to be very um, uh, um, egalitarian in that sense, right? So that there is a, a sense that the culture is such that people will have each other's back whenever somebody needed to take some time off and it doesn't become like a, a very calculative um, experience. So this is something yeah. that I, I thought was really important um, to share that people need breaks and how do we do it? Uh, I also would like to share about uh, a startup, a tech startup, um, um, which, which become hugely successful yeah. now. And they have a, a similar policy where they have a, a day, a day or an afternoon, not a day, an afternoon where the entire organization does not have meetings. They're not allowed to have meetings with one another. So they get a break from meetings and they can go do their own stuff, like they can do their deep dive work, et cetera. And it only works if the entire organization uh, does it. So yeah, so some food for thought there. Well, thank you. At this point, um, um, you know, I'd like to uh, cite a question that uh, Mavis McAllister has shared. This is uh, for uh, Yong Yong, and it relates to Carrie's point about needing to ensure that when you do design the policies that, um, you know, these are sort of spread out across the organization. So uh, Mavis McAllister asks, how do you create a culture of acceptance so managers and leaders look past disabilities uh, and uh, um, you know, not consider the people with disabilities uh, mafan or you know, uh, difficult? Okay. Thank you, thank you for the question. And um, I wonder if that managed to get through. Sorry? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Let me let me just. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I, I think of what Terry said just now, and uh, using a, a kind of Mavis's question to um, you know uh, apply that to uh, people with disabilities. Yes, I think I think indeed the culture is very important, and the culture is not just something about what's coming down from the top or what's going up from the bottom. Um, at the end of the day, I think that um, employing someone is actually a statement, a value statement made by the company. Who you engage, how you treat your employee, tells people a lot about what the company is about. And I think if we are going to talk about how to shape the culture of the company, it starts definitely with management sitting down and the founders um, to find out, uh, to talk about why they wanted this company in the first place. Um, Beyond that, I thought again that we should go, we shouldn't go beyond disabilities. I think we should talk about the disabilities of the people that we want to engage because it is something which gives to us the sense of reality, the reality of the difficulties and certain expectations that may not be met. And it will then lead us if it, uh, if it aligns with our values, it will lead us to explore job redesigns, 
it will lead us to discuss with our employees, uh, our fellow employees, how to uh, accommodate and how to work around all these uh, limitations. If all we were thinking about is to ignore disabilities, but to look at the abilities, I doubt very much that we would be able to um, create sustainable employment at all. Um, and culture, as we all know, is it something that's going to happen overnight. It really starts with the values and it starts and it continues with a lot of action and a lot of commitment on both sides, employees, employers and people with disabilities who wish to be employed. Thank you for that. Sandy, uh, you've been in the big, big corporate sector. You have that background, but you've also now decided you have to uh, set up a, a different uh, corporate sort of uh, body in order to do what you really think is important in terms of inclusion and sort of giving people a stake. Um, the dollars and cents of it, you know, uh, do you really need these changes to come through a board, you know, draw on what you know from uh, the past, or you, you have to actually redesign the whole organization uh, as uh, Yong Yong may have suggested, unless there's some kind of subtle cultural change uh, that takes place, you know, at the top. Uh, what I mean, are your suggestions, Sandy? There's a, there's a, there's an undervaluing of good leadership. Um, I mean, leadership will determine the culture of the whole company. You know, so like I said, we talked about tokenism before. We just did things for grants or whatever. If that was why you did it, you know, then nothing changes. The structure that you have will stay the same. And unfortunately, with a lot of, of our career employees who work nine to five and they keep their heads down and they just want to do what they do, they get very jealous. They get very hurt when they see things happening and they're being overlooked just because somebody is given preferences or allowances or time off to have a break. They don't understand this, you know, and it is, it's incumbent on the leadership of the company to actually make everybody understand that we survive, we win, we lose as a team. We win and lose as an organization. So if everybody becomes calculative on the little, little things that annoy you or the little things that actually create friction within your organization, then regardless of what policies you put in as part of your HR workbook, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It comes down to good leadership where the company understands the philosophy of what they do, why they do it, how they do it. And the employees are part of that program. You know, and if you have a very rigid structure where the employees cannot accept it, then you need to change the structure or you need to change the employees where everybody understands what the philosophy is. Otherwise, you're just not achieving your objectives. That's my two cents worth. Right. Thank you. It does bring us back to uh, Junie's uh, agenda, isn't it? Uh, you know, you have to get the right leadership. Um, so is uh, diversity in leadership important? Junie, you want to jump in then next, Carrie? Oh, I just, yes, I just wanted to share that. Um, so this is the MWS hat, um, the Methodist Welfare Services. We do have um, wheelchair-bound uh, employees. Uh, we have a staff and she is uh, deaf and mute. But they are doing great jobs, and and I I, and we want to um, have more of them because employment, as we said just now, is empowerment as well. So so I think it's something that um, is we, we hope to build into the whole value system of of our organization. 
Um, and and yeah, I, I thought I'd just share that. Yeah, thank you, Carrie. Thank you. Yeah, um, I wanted to to you know align with Yong Yong because I fully agree with what she said earlier that we don't want to look beyond. We want to really look at, really look at because um, I think uh, back to the point I made about the mental health thing, right? That is going to be a pretty common phenomenon. I think uh, in in the past uh, couple of years, I've had uh, numerous young interns come and. Um, there's a, a good number of them who, who you know, struggle with some mental health um, uh, challenges. And I think we, we cannot, you know, um, ignore it and try to hope that they can be, you know, performing like everyone else. Um, I think what is important is to recognize uh, where the limitations are uh, and plan for and around it. So, for example, um, my partner's organization, uh, right, they hired somebody who was uh, blind, perfectly capable of coming in, in to work and, and holding up her own. Um, and they had empl an employee who had bipolar disorder. You know, he would fall asleep at his desk sometimes from medication, but he was able to deliver good work. I mean, I think I was having this conversation with uh, the CEO of IMH, Professor Daniel Fung, just yesterday. And I said, do we have any studies about for example, uh, how many days in a year is somebody with bipolar disorder likely to be functional versus not functioning so well because they have relapses? And I think when we understand the conditions, we understand the parameters around which they are able to contribute, then we can plan for their contribution uh, and plan so that those times when they could be down or they, those things they may not be, um, be able to contribute at could be covered by other provisions or other team members in, in, the, in the workplace. Um, and I think that is the way to, to make things work. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Let me pick up on um, Lucas Monti's uh, comment and let me just try and uh, put out what he's uh, trying to say. Um, uh, basically, uh, the mainstream of the corporate sector, uh, if they were to hire on the basis of meritocracy, uh, is still kind of held back by uh, the focus on academic qualifications. This makes it even harder for uh, alternative people, uh, alternative, uh, 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 you know, um, hiring practices uh, for, for HR to look past disabilities or look at disabilities and the backgrounds and things like that. So um, the question is, what do panelists have in terms of suggestions uh, for the HR practice in Singapore to uh, kind of uh, promote the hiring uh, with a kind of the, you know, to, to promote more diverse hiring practices, yeah. Mm. I think we've been talking about this. We talked about the leadership level, um, but really there's a fixation with academic qualifications and yeah. then, you know, it really uh, is a stumbling block. So how have the companies you've engaged sort of been able to get past this, especially the progressive ones? Hmm. Um, maybe I can chime in here because I used to be a headhunter in my earlier life and I worked very closely with HR. And the phenomenon of looking at the job description that your business unit hiring manager gives you if you're a HR person, and then looking at the resume and trying to find the matching keywords <laughs> to, to hire that practice, I think is still very much the same now as, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It hasn't changed. So I think it starts with the, the HR um, profession um, being trained um, with business awareness. 
um, perhaps like HR, HR um, uh, personnel could be rotated in management training programs, for example, right, across different business units, because I think the ability to understand to some extent the nature of the business unit and what they require will help them to better assess the suitability of a candidate beyond what is the obvious, like, you know, the degree, you know, the major in the degree, which often have no bearing on, on the person's experience in the later in their profession uh, mm -hmm. or, or their career. Right. So I think that would be a helpful way uh, to help HR professionals be better equipped uh, to make hiring or recommend hiring um, practices or be the, the, the ones to to um, embark on hiring practices that are not fixated uh, or based uh, very much too closely on the academic qualifications. Um, and I think the HR sector, the HR profession has a tremendous role uh, to be an advocate and to be the change maker in this because it is precisely this kind of prior practice of looking at academic qualifications that's causing a lot of stress on our students in the education system. Um, parents are, are, are just worried about whether their kids can get a job, right? And if, it's, and if people started hiring people regardless of whether they had a degree, but based on who they are, you know, and uh, their passion and their interests and, and uh, uh, what they love to do, then I think the pressure on the ed ac uh, academic system and in the education system for our students and young people uh, would ease off. So I think the HR sector is a critical stakeholder uh, in this piece. Right. Thank you, Carrie. Yong Yong, you kicked off by saying that you had graduated with a law degree. And so even with the academic qualifications, uh, there are still a lot of stumbling blocks. So we talked about the leadership level. We talked about HR practice. We also said about, uh, that, that policies that accommodate uh, people are different, uh, but uh, differently abled uh, and able still uh, have to be propagated across the organization. What do you, what do you have to say um, on these points, on, on this uh, uh, approach? Uh, Yong Yong, over to you. Do unmute yourself, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, I think it is uh, important that we recognize that the purpose of work in the context of an of a company is to achieve certain outcomes and to achieve certain impact. So I think that uh, that's the first recognition. The second is that work evolves. Work uh, description and specifications evolve and has changed over centuries, over decades, in, and now over years and months. And if we have these two as our basic principles, I think we would first be prepared to recognize that we could reorganize and redesign our work to suit and to harness the talent and the abilities of the people within our team. And if we also uh, value the dignity of every person and if we respect each person who comes to us and works with us as an equal, I think we would also be able to harness and motivate that person into uh, harness the talent of the person and motivate and nurture that person into somebody who's better. So to me, I think aside from um, the leaders and the co-workers taking the lead, I think it's important that the HR plays that role to be prepared to redesign and to split up the work according to the abilities of the team. 
Thank you. Um, Junie, what is that value proposition you, uh, you know, uh, kind of try to get your, uh, the women leaders you place on boards to uh, present to their organizations to sort of uh, tell them to kind of be creative, do something different, you know, uh, you know, identify what you're trying to do, but see that there are several ways of doing it and, you know, apply some innovation to uh, bring in the full uh, complement of human capital that Singapore, that people all over Singapore can offer? Uh, I, I guess it's not only the, the women, right? I, I, I guess um, anyone in, this, yeah, in, in senior management position, um, the, the HR, um, they should look at um, workers as talent. So, so in, in MWS, we, we are reorganizing our whole HR really and and uh, it's, it's, it's about talent rewards, talent retention, talent acquisition, talent, you know. So, so they are talents that we want to invest in. Everyone has a, a proper career pathway, competency frameworks, um, and, and really is to build the staff up. And, and I, I, I feel that if organizations can, can have that kind of mentality or, or that vision, I mean, I'm very grateful. I do not have, I did not have any social service um, sector experience, right? Right, you were right, Jillian. You were introducing me. I was a former corporate banker, and hey, suddenly she is in the social sector, and I'm grateful for that. It took a chance on me, isn't it? Right. So we need to take chances and give opportunities to people, um, and just like what Carrie and Yong Yong said, just and even Sandy, totally no F and B background, and now right, you you have a a cohort of. Uh, professional F&B people that you have built over just a short period of time. And, and I think that is what, um, going back to reimagining our right corporate and, and, and culture for 2030 Singapore, um, we really need to look at things uh, this way and mm-hmm. be really boxed up in the traditional way of hiring, firing, looking at academic results only, Sometimes you need that hunger. Yeah. I, I, I tend to look for people that are hungry. <laughs> yes. That's back to you again, Sandy. Yeah, I think Lucas <laughs> you asked, don't just need the hungry, but you're saying yeah. that we need to ourselves be hungry. Be hungry. Find Lucas, organizations that are creative. Lucas and, asked a very, very good question. because yeah. and, and both Carrie and Yong Yong touched on the point of the, the relevance of HR and this whole process. I mean... Everybody who has a good corporate position worries about losing it. Uh, The HR guys worry that if they put up candidates that don't fit the brief, they'll be questioned on how good an HR person are you. You didn't even tick all the boxes. This guy doesn't even have a O level or whatever. You know, this is this is the part of the problem. There's a culture where everybody is trying to cover their own butts, if I can say that, Um, and ticking off the meritocracy education academic uh, box is quite an important part of that. I mean, the truth is, and having met a lot of these people in the music industry, a lot of young people do really badly when they're in school because they have no interest in, in academics, but are creative, are talented, are motivated, are driven, have got amazing ideas for marketing, right? Um, and if you hire them purely on what grade they got in mass media at the university, right, 
and that's how you grade them, then you are doing yourself a great disservice. I mean, how do you access these people? I don't have a short answer rather than giving them the opportunity to sit in front of you or, or work in front of you for a couple of weeks or a couple of months where you go, wow, that guy's really good. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the current president, current chairman of Universal Music globally, a guy called Sir Lucien Grange now, I don't think he went to university. I, he was a radio plugger. He was a guy that went to radio stations asking them, please play my song. And now he's the chairman of the biggest music company globally. Mm -hmm. So what is the answer? The answer is, I don't know. You have to have some mechanism where HR takes more effort than just vetting CVs purely on academics. There must be some process where these people get seen. Yeah. If they're not seen, you're not going to find them. Yeah. And their value I, unearthed uh, from just, uh, you know, from spending time with them, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, Carrie, you're going to jump in yes. before I go to the next question. Yeah. I, I fully, fully appreciate the, the challenge that uh, Sandy just raised, right? That um, uh, there's an expectation if you're an HR person that, hey, you got to do your job a certain way and hey, you got to tick the boxes. If not, you know, um, the hiring manager may not buy it. So I, I always thought that, and one thing that I, I made myself learn um, by putting myself in the deep end of things was, was pitching like sales communication skills. And I think if we could equip uh, HR professionals with that at a very early part of the training, that they would be able to communicate the value uh, or the perspective that they see why this candidate would be a good fit for the job based on her understanding and communication hiring manager. Mm -hmm. um, I think most business managers would take a chance on it. You know, they don't just want to be shoved and, and enter an interview with someone who, who they don't see on paper and they don't know, right? I think HR can play the role of an advocate for individuals. Um, if they um, can spend the time and are willing to spend the time to understand from the hiring business uh, manager what they really need and spend the time to see um, the shining spots uh, in the candidate's profile beyond the academics, they could make a pitch. Um, and I think this pitching skills is, is critically important for anything that we want to do, uh, including um, pitching people forward for, for opportunities that they really otherwise would not be able to, to have. Um, and I think that therein lies the purpose of the vocation, right? Um, do you enter the HR uh, profession because you wanted to do administrative work? Or do you actually want to be in a, in a role that empowers and enables people? Um, mm. So I think, you know, uh, going back to that purpose uh, could help um, um, maybe inject some motivation um, for, for a lot of demoralized HR professionals to, to think about what are some of these new skill sets that could be really helpful for you to find meaning and purpose in your roles. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. And um, really, uh, for it, the HR practice in Singapore to be a bit more meaningful, I think we, we said we need the right leaders as well to give them license to do that and to unearth the value uh, within um, all sorts of people. Uh, Ernest Eng asked if this conversation could please include the role of ex-offenders. So is there anything else you would like to add uh, to this sort of thread of discussion about, you know, uh, looking at and looking beyond also, um, you know, people with some easy labels. Yeah. What uh, would you have to say about the role of ex-offenders? I think one or two of you would have interesting stories to share. I think it's, it's an objective of what does that person want to achieve? If they want a new start, they want to prove themselves, then 
why shouldn't they be given opportunity? I mean, the truth is, you will then make your path forward. If you're given the chance and you do extremely well, then your past no longer matters. It's your future. Um, and I think this is, this is the basic um, issue. The, the, I, I actually talked to quite a few people with regards to, to hiring people in, um, with past records. And they would say, oh, you don't do this because they are like this, they're like this, like this. It doesn't matter. You just need to find the right people who really, really want a chance to, to make a difference in their, their own lives and the lives of their families. And if you find these people and you give them the chance, then they make their future. And There's if they do, a, they, make, they make your future as well. Right. Yeah. A process of step-by-step -step, uh, trust building too, I suppose. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this one, mm, we're we are embarking on that in a way because uh, after I've you know, uh, exited myself or stepped out from my executive director role and thought uh, I've recently been involved in um, being steering advisor for a new nonprofit called Rise Community uh, that focuses on working with men who are currently marginalized from the workforce. Uh, and, and this community um, would have some uh, ex-offenders in there. Um, but I think the the learnings um, that I got from DOT would not be, would be quite applicable because the, it's about stigma right, uh, about, you know, whether a single mother feels like there's a stigma about her as a single mother or an ex-offender, uh, either experiencing or perceiving stigma um, in their workplaces. I think what is really important about um, enabling the success of um, taking on an ex-offender at work, even despite, uh, you know, you having given them a, a, an opening chance, is the willingness to be patient and this sounds really fluffy, yeah, but I, I, I'm telling you, this is the formula. It's about unconditional love. Because um, this, the, the psychology of, and the experience of uh, this community is such that um, they're unable uh, or they need, a, um, they need a, a healing process with the community before they can believe that good things can happen to them. And sometimes uh, they may perceive innocent um, actions or behaviors or words as being affronting. They're quite sensitive to that because they've had so much, um, probably experienced so much abuse or rejection in their lives um, that they find it hard to, uh, you know, maybe even believe the nice, nice nicety of people. Um, and it's really about walking with them through their emotional ups and downs uh, and building that trust relationship exactly like you said, Jillian. And it takes time. Um, it takes that willingness to say, hey, you know, you could be reacting to something, but this was not what we meant. And we really, you know, uh, appreciate you and, and all that. So there's a lot of this um, softness um, and, and uh, soft, um, soft skills involved in, in walking the journey with these employees. Mm -hmm. um, that would be, I promise it would be super, super uh, fulfilling, even though it will be a little bit, you know, challenging or arduous, but um, that patience would go really a long way. Okay, yeah. Um, Please go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we, we do have someone uh, who was an ex-offender uh, as well, and he's doing very, very well. Uh, in fact, we, we reached out um, to uh, some of the social service agencies that look after um, uh, drug offenders, former, uh, former offenders, and, and we say we want to give them employment. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and, and so... So we, we are trying to place them as well because um, we want to tell them that, look, you know, this is a place for second chances as well. Yeah. So 
thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you know, talking about advocating for, uh, you know, um, these people who deserve second chances or, uh, you know, um, or people with disabilities, back to uh, the questions and comments we've been receiving. Uh, Jer Jeremy Arodos uh, and a few other people have said, uh, back to the issue of people with disabilities, what is SG Enable? What are the organizations doing to advocate, to promote you know, the hiring of people with disabilities? Um, and uh, how are employers incentivized to do so? Um, are there any training grants to uh, help with that? Um, and I guess, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, it's over to you, Yong Yong, um, you know, just to get into um, a, a few of the details about uh, what's the ecosystem that there is at the present time and who are the advocates for the people with disabilities uh, and so on. Yeah. Thank you. I'd like to thank Jeremy for the question. But before I answer that, uh, Gillian, do you mind if I jump in on the earlier question about yeah, it? Of course, please go ahead. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think uh, I agree very much with my fellow panelists about you know how we should give everybody a opportunity and a break uh, to start a new life. Um, however, I also think that pretty much in the same vein as uh, how we would employ people with disabilities. I think it's also important for us to uh, approach this in a uh, balanced manner. Um, what I mean to say is that the, and a person should not be discriminated against simply because the person had a record. However, the work or the job that is to be offered to the person should not be one that could cause a person to fall into a known weakness. So in other words, we should not put ourselves in a position or we should not offer a temptation to our, our potential employee. And I thought that's something which again, you know, um, um, HR and leaders should think about in how they could uh, absorb employees uh, with records into their workforce uh, and yet allow them uh, a healthy environment in which they could grow, overcome, and then mature into higher roles. So that's just my two cents worth. Now, coming back to Jeremy's question, um, indeed, there are many, many schemes that are available. And what's um, a little bit disappointing is that despite our um, promoting and announcements, um, social media, uh, in mainstream media, somehow many employers don't seem to be aware that they're actually available. Um, some of the schemes available, for example, for employment specifically, uh, would be the open door program, where you could get, um, where employers are subsidized, uh, they, have, they can apply for a grant to render a workplace uh, disability friendly in order to accommodate the employment of a uh, person with disability. That's the enabling employer credit, which is a rich offset uh, for the hiring of uh, persons with disabilities for up to six months. And there is an additional grant if the person had been previously unemployed for more than six months. There is the workfare income supplement for low income persons with disabilities, workfare skills support 
for the same group of people and the job redesign grant that provides uh, subsidies to equip uh, you know, homes of employees with disabilities for telecommuting. Um, and then on the job training grant, job growth incentive. And in fact, um, under the job growth incentive, we have more than, uh, you know, we have 1 billion Singapore dollars set aside uh, to encourage uh, locals, right? To hire, uh, look, uh, no, and get, to encourage employees to hire locals. And um, under this scheme, a person who is disabled, uh, if hired, will result in the employer obtaining a 50% uh, subsidy of the salary, subsidy, sorry, a subsidy, a grant up to 50% of the salary of the employee with a disability for 18 months. So um, I think it ends next month. So start hiring. <laughs> yeah. um, in addition, in addition, just one last uh, uh, point, and that is that uh, there is also a grant to render old buildings accessible. And again, this has been uh, not very, very popular uh, with building owners. So that's also quite regrettable. Right. Thank you. We can we have resources uh, dedicated to do better. So thank you for setting them out. Uh, setting them out. Uh, Eugene of NIE Yongyong uh, says, um, "What does SG Enable do to raise national consciousness of all people enabled differently? Uh, uh, you know, amongst employers." Um, says uh, you know. So since you're on the board of SG Enable, just add a few more words about how you're, uh, you know, how SG Enables getting the word, getting, you know, the, the, the fact of these schemes and, and the advocacy for people with disabilities out. Yeah. Um, I think when we designed the Enabling Village, what we wanted to have was a space where people could come and see how they could live and in a community that is accessible and open to everyone on a universal basis regardless of whether you were young or old, whether you had a disability or not. Um, moving from that, we also took on um, employment as a main chunk of the work that we have. We do not have a discrimination against age, whether you're young or old. Uh, we have three agencies that work with uh, SGE, SPD, for people who are physically and who have sensory challenges. Uh, we have uh, ARC as well as MINDS. So again, it's not a uh, specific uh, age group that we look at, but across all with functional disabilities. Okay. So if you have people who are elderly, vulnerable and with a disability, they will fall within the services that SGE uh, and the partners uh, provide. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Now, uh, back to everyone, um, Jeffrey Ng and uh, Chin Ju have, um, you know, sort of offered some questions and comments about whether it might be a good idea to, um, you know, have more internships available 
for uh, people with different profiles to kind of be there and I guess add to that the kind of HR practice that we were just talking about. So what's your view on, uh, you know, just the uh, making uh, internships more available? Add to that, it's also about preparing the rest of the workforce in the organization to receive people of different profiles. So uh, that's what Chinju's added in his comments there. Yeah. Uh, back to you, whoever would like to take this up. Mm. I'm going to do a plug uh, for Dollars of Tomorrow. Yes. I think they've recently um, embarked on what they call a greenhouse program uh, to encourage um, corporates, our corporate partners, to provide uh, internships and apprenticeships to uh, to women. Um, well, because the, we've seen that uh, due to the educational, uh, I think, constraints and limitations, um, they often find that the women are in the low-wage uh, sectors and jobs, and we really want to help the women uh, get access to um, higher-paying jobs in the corporate settings, in, in, you know, in office jobs. They really like office jobs, very glamorous for them, um, but they may not have had the opportunity or exposure before, so it's very scary and intimidating for them. Um, so corporate partners, uh, we're looking for corporate partners, um, believe, to, to provide these internships uh, to the women. And uh, yeah, so that's something that we are doing. Um, at the same time, the second point you mentioned about preparing uh, the, the workplace environment and the workplace community to receive um, with uh, these, uh, what I, I would call um, maybe special employees in a good way because they, they're there to, to perhaps impart and share a very different perspectives with us uh, through their own lives, etc. Um, I think what we've been doing very well uh, at Dollars of Tomorrow is we run uh, empathy building workshops um, through sensitization programs um, for bosses, for HR people, for supervisors, um, any ranks that um, of employer partners uh, who are interested to hire from our pool of uh, talented women. So I think it's really important that the preparatory and orientation of employers is, is, is also a critical part to make this um, employment uh, relationship a success. Thanks for sharing that and uh, sharing about your program, Carrie. Uh, Yong Yong, anything you want to add? Yeah, thank you. Um, internships. Yes. So SGE uh, conducts internship uh, 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 initiatives with various organizations and uh, we collaborate with RISE. Uh, to provide mentorships as well for our students. Uh, SG also runs transition to work programs. Uh, we cover from school to work, hospital to work, sheltered workshop to work. Um, SPD collaborates with institutions of higher learning to provide internship for students as well. So um, I think, you know, this give very good exposure both to the companies as well as to the students. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hope that the internships actually translate into future employment. And that has actually happened for some of our students. And we're very happy about that. That's good. Good to put the word out there and uh, also pair all this with the empathy training that Carrie was talking about. Sandy, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, this is- this, Actually, don't this you is, this hire is... people because they are different? No, it's <laughs> a blast from the past for me for, for internships because um. You know, being in the music industry beforehand, I mean, it's a very, very desirable job for kids out of school and university, and everybody wants to be part of the music industry. And I remember that we had a program, I think we had about 12 or something like this as a maximum per, per period. 
and we would, we'd get full, full requests for internships. And, you know, the thing that running internships is that you must make sure that the interns get a value of what they need to know in order to take up a career in the business. And the people that you appoint to look after the interns and indoctrinate them into the process of the company must also be well-versed on why they're teaching the interns. Because the interns come and go so quickly that a fraction stay, right? The others go and do university or do something else like this, and they leave the whole process. So they just there to take up space, mm -hmm. but they don't actually stay within the business. So the people that are actually given the responsibility of, of passing on the, the role and responsibilities of working in industry have to be well briefed on how to actually teach this. So I'll give you a very simple example that's going to age me tremendously. Um, so I, this was the day when all the, the record reviews were in newspapers, right? And there would be big articles on your artists and the, the music that they did. And what I used to do was I would get a weekly report where all these articles were cut out into a one folder and put on my desk so I could see how well the team was doing with regards to publicity, right? And it was almost robotic. Every Monday they would come in and they'd have all these newspaper cuttings and, you know, taking glue and pasting them on paper. And of course, that was a hated job and all the interns were actually told to do it. Um, they didn't understand why they were doing it other than the fact that, oh, the boss wants to see this every week, right? but they didn't understand why. Why was it so important to see this? And um, one day I walked past this group of interns doing this newspaper cutting and I asked them, why are you doing this? And they said, oh, because so-and-so told me to do this. So they don't actually understand why they're doing it. They just know that they have to do it. And I sat down there and I said, the reason why you do this is because if I was to spend money, let's just say Taylor Swift, right? If I was to spend money and take out an ad in a magazine or a newspaper, every square centimeter has a value, right? Whatever I can get written for the artist for free is money we have saved and we can basically put it together towards other marketing for the same artist to publicize it even more. So every inch of paper that you've cut here has a value. So your job is to understand what that value is. And later when you take on a role of actually pushing publicity into the magazines and newspapers, you understand why you do this because what you do has value. And you can see the light bulb goes off in the head that, oh my God, I, I get it now. <laughs> so when we talk about internships, anybody can run a program for internships where you have hundreds of people, you know, uh, circling through the, circulating through the company at any given time. And they have no intent of, of um, doing this um, in the long term because they're gonna go to England and do law or they're gonna do something and it's my mom called my so-and-so and so-and-so -so works for the company, therefore I got the internship. That is not internship with value, right? right? Um, so I used to lecture at one of the big music colleges um, and I used to open uh, universal music for internships for anybody from that college. And like I said, we had 12 at any given point in time. And somebody asked me, why do you, none of the other record companies did this, why do you do this? I said, all these people have actually gone to a music college. They want to be in music. That's the first thing. They want to make a career out of this. I said, when you do your internships with me, it's an internship for three months, right? So what I'm doing here is I'm taking the pick of the bunch from the music college and they're going through a three-month interview. 
Mm-hmm. So if you change the philosophy of how you actually run your internships with the intention of actually hiring the best out of the bunch who did the internship with you, then internships are of immeasurable value. Wow. Right? If you do it as a system of circulating young people to the company, and forget it. It just has no value. Right. Thank you. And, and while you still have the mic, Sandy, tell us a little bit about also Rebels kind of philosophy about human talent development. Uh, you know, I, I think so there's it's, something it's, that it's, uh, you're trying to also do differently in Rebel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like I said, when we first put up the, the ads for, for hiring people, I mean, everybody just wanted to get some money to cover costs or family or whatever it is. Nobody actually comes in with the idea of, oh, in five years, I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to be doing that. They think that when they come in and they come in as... Uh, outlet staff, right, taking orders and cleaning tables, they come with the intention to apply for that job, right? At Rebel, that's not what we want. Mm-hmm. You know, we need you to understand why we do things a certain way. We need you to understand why we are so fussy about the way we make our sandwiches. We, we need to understand why wrapping it in a particular way is so important and why you must wrap it with pride, right? Because this gives you a grounding in the philosophy of what the company represents. But Rebel has ambitions. We already have requests for franchise in two countries around the region, right? When Rebel franchises, and we go to Indonesia, for example, who's going to teach the Indonesians? The same people who started as outlet staff are now going to become regional representatives or regional trainers going around here, there, everywhere. Um, I, I want to create a path of success where if you prove yourself or you show yourself to have the ability to, to do more and be more, then I want every opportunity to come to you. And that's the story of Rebel. I mean, I don't want you to be an air stewardess just because for the rest of your life, just because you, be, you joined as an air stewardess, right? If you had the chance to become a pilot, if you got a chance to become the regional logistics controller, if you have the ability, make it happen. Mm-hmm. That's, that's part of the policy of Rebel. Wow, okay. Thank you for that, Sandy. Juni, anything you want to add to this before I uh, cut to uh, other comments and questions quickly? Oh, I mean, hearing Sandy speak, I want to join Rebel. (laughs) (laughs) We want to introduce many more of the people we know to Rebel. Yes. (laughs) I mean, mean, my my biggest regret is with with the damage of COVID. I mean, Rebel is a small organization. I mean, we had ambitions of being in Malaysia two years ago and in Indonesia this year, right? All of that's been pushed back 24 Mm -hmm. months. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, if it wasn't for the government grants, I think Rebel would be dead. Um, you know, so we are, we are hopeful. Uh, we have a story that people are interested in. We are hopeful that the kind of motivation we're giving our young people drives them to do more and be more. I mean, I'll give you a very funny story. Last Friday, we had a corporate order, right, um, for a, a company, right? And they wanted 50 deliveries to 50 locations around Singapore all within one hour. Um, we don't have that ability. So we use all the third-party platforms we could figure out to get all the, the, the deliveries out and we were still short. And my staff turned to me and said, you have to deliver the rest. So as the most senior member of the company, my most important value to the company was a delivery dispatch for food because my staff were more capable of organizing this order going out in 50 locations so I had more value as a driver than I did actually helping them run the company. And this is what makes me very, very proud about my team. 
Thank you for sharing that. So real quick, let me uh, dash through a few questions and comments. Just pay attention because you may want to respond to them. I won't uh, direct them. Uh, first, uh, there's a question about whether um, there are soft skills needed to affect the kind of paradigm shifts that we were talking about, whether it's at the board level or leadership, uh, certainly at the HR level. So um, how, how do you uh, kind of uh, effect this sort of uh, shift, uh, says uh, Valerie Ang. Um, another question, let me just read this off by Eddie Lee. Divides due to religion or party interests are growing in many countries. How do we handle such subtle issues in recruitment? Um, so that's another one. Um, for Yong Yong, because you did uh, sort of mention uh, something to do with um, the international community, uh, Thelma Kay uh, asks, how have UN treaties like CEDAW uh, you know, the Convention Against uh, uh, Discrimination of People with Disabilities and things like that helped to actually create the opportunities that you've been talking about and uh, deal with uh, discrimination. Um, I, I wonder with uh, the PM's announcement about making TOFEP law, whether there's um, going to be that uh, aspect of uh, dealing with discrimination against disabilities. I think that would be really quite far out, maybe a 2030 vision, but whether you have hope for that. Um, so that's uh, an, another question. Um, yeah, uh, there's so, Chris Gee asked that, so there's so many ways for companies to do good. What would the panelists suggest uh, a company get started on uh, to just kick off this journey of uh, trying to foster more progressive and inclusive uh, employment policies. So um, anyone wants to weigh in before I kind of uh, close out with uh, a few questions about your own journey and change making? Yeah. Anyone wants to start? Uh, Carrie, soft skills. Uh, oh, I was going to tackle the <laughs> the the hiring bit about um, uh, religion and yes. party differences. I guess partisan views. Uh, you could, that, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm quite surprised to hear that, and uh, maybe I haven't come across any stories around that. I would actually really love to to know more about um, any kind of incidences that have happened because of or, or people experiencing. Uh, you know, not being hired because of their political views. Of course, personally, and I think as a country, we would not condone any form of discrimination along religious um, or partisan lines, right? I think people uh, believe in hiring for their merit, what they can contribute. Um, and I, I believe what uh, PM announced at the National Day Rally about the uh, Anti-Discrimination Act um, will go some way to to hopefully um, address that if it does happen, but also send a very strong signal that this really should not be happening. Um, yes. I would be personally very keen to hear um, if there were encounters um, of, of non-hiring because of political views. Yeah. Maybe it's not obvious to me, and, and I think that is a very concerning thing to happen in our society. I guess this is also the week where we've taken a step, uh, a further step in terms of inclusion on a, on the faith-based front mm. uh, by uh, with the announcement that uh, women uh, donning tudong, uh, women will be allowed to don tudong in uh, healthcare. Mm. 
Um, yeah. But uh, I, I suppose, um, you know, uh, we'd, we'd of course love to hear more examples mm. of cases or incidents where uh, religion gets in the way. Um, mm. any, anyone else wants to uh, respond to the questions or comments? Yong Yong? Thank you. Yeah. Um, um, I thought I thought uh, a quick comment on the paradigm shift. We've been talking a lot about its uh, leaders and HR and the company, but I thought it was important also for me to share that people with disabilities should also um, be prepared to acknowledge that there will be difficulties uh, in employment that they do have limitations, but be very, very aware that they have abilities. In other words, I would like us to all be realistic about ourselves, what we can do and what we cannot, and not to have, and to understand that when we join a company, it is also incumbent upon us to fit, to assimilate, into the culture of the company. So it takes both to make employment work. And it's not just an issue that is specific to people with disabilities. It's, it's basic employment common sense, right? Everybody goes into a company and we accommodate each other and we assimilate. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, we do in the process of our uh, job support and counseling, we have come across difficult issues that are faced by people with disabilities. And uh, we have had to share with them that sometimes um, there has got to be a giving of way on our part as well. Okay. And it doesn't always happen one way. And I think that's important for us to share with employers because uh, we don't want you know, um, employers to think that every employment becomes a burden to them. Okay. And it should be. Right. Yeah. Thank you for um, that, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And then moving on to the question on the discrimination, right? Um, I think the Convention uh, on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities uh, does have non-discrimination as one of its guiding principles. In fact, there are eight guiding principles. So when we ratified the Convention, uh, Singapore is committing to non-discrimination uh, against persons with disabilities. Will we ever have a specific piece of legislation uh, against discrimination other than what um, PM alluded to? I personally do not wish to see that at the moment. I do not think that you could legislate against discrimination as much as you could legislate to love. What we need to do is to work within the community between ourselves, to know that it's not necessarily another person's problem. It could happen to us, somebody we love, anytime, any day. And because of that, if nothing else, we will not and we refuse to view another person who is different, differently. Right. We continue to respect the person and we continue to nurture the person and um, 
that I, that is where I think we could become stronger as a people. There have been countries that have legislated employment quota, but you've seen how companies have just been either prepared to pay the penalty or they've just employed people with disabilities on a token basis. That's not what we want. Yeah. Want real value to the person, to the employee, to the employer, to the economy. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so moving forward, the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities will continue to, I can't speak for the government, but I hope you, I believe I'm very sure <laughs> that it will continue to guide us in all our planning. Uh, it's guided, uh, even before we acceded to it, it already guided the master plans. It will continue the enabling master plans and it will continue to guide the enabling master plans as all the main master plans of the company, uh, country. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, over to Junie. I think for a paradigm shift, really, it has to be um, intentional and um, uh, top down, bottom up, because um, uh, we, we do need um, the, the, the rest of the staff as well to embrace them. Uh, so, so it has to be intentional and um, it's not going to be a silver bullet, obviously. It will take time for organizations to, um, to really get the HR right, the policies right, right? To, to, to tell the employees, look, you know, we're going to, um, everybody is going to uh, be, be hired uh, by merit, even with physical disability. So, so, so I, I, so I think um, it should be intentional. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that. Over to you, Sandy. Any responses to the? Yeah, I, I think that I wanted to touch on the issue of soft skills. I mean, soft skills are so important, uh, not just from the work environment, but just just as people in general. Um, it, it goes back to the whole HR question of meritocracy and ac academics and all that. Well, it's, it's all part of the same issue. If you follow a formula or you follow a, a tick box kind of situation and that's how you judge everybody and that's how you, you make everything work, it's probably not going to be a very nice environment. Right. Um, so the soft skills on every part, whether it's on a leadership value, HR value, workforce value, but even as the employee themselves, you know, there, there's a shortage of soft skills everywhere. You know, and if this is a change, then we need to do something that actually inculcates more elements of, of soft value and, and, and soft power with regards to getting what you want and moving things forward. Um, that's, I think that's the sign of a, of a developed society. Wow. Yeah. So let's let's. I know time is uh, pressing, and we're, we're we we need to close. So let's close by asking you. I mean, you all are people with very clear soft skills. Tell us uh, in rounding up something that would encourage or inspire the people who want to make change out there happen. Uh, you know, what's your message to them? Uh, just as a way, as a parting shot uh, for our, from our forum today. Uh, let's start with Sandy and then we'll close with Carrie. We'll go the other way around. Sandy, what do you have to say about yourself as a change maker or anything you want to say to change no, makers? It, it's, it's really funny. When, when I started this in the FMB business, people went like, why do you want to do that? There's already a formula and just make as much money as you can. And the bottom line is I said, I think what I'm doing is good business. 
being being encouraging of my my team and and creating young entrepreneurs is good business for me. Having suppliers as partners is good business for me. Having investors who are who are invested in the brand as a whole and not their own investments is good for me. Good for business. So it's just about a different perspective. You know, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's right. There are many many ways to succeed. You know, and you choose the path that works for you. I guess that's all I can say. Right. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, integrating it all together, being back in touch with what really matters, and and it be good for business. You're saying. Thank you, Sandy. Over to you, Juni. <laughs> so, so gender diversity is good for business. It is true. It is. It is an economic imperative, really, and it's really beneficial to have more senior women leadership in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Because um, really, it should be. It, it shouldn't be a zero sum game. Uh, I must say, I'm an uh, an accidental change maker, if I can say that. Because uh, I, I just thought that the numbers just didn't measure up. You know, 10, 10 11 years ago, when mm-hmm. we the numbers, and I thought, I think we should do something about it. So, so at first, it was really to create that awareness. Hey, did you know that our our rate um, percentages are so low in terms of female representation and that's how I got started and really it wasn't about uh, women's liberation chest thumping but really it's about human capital it's about talent retention and having the best uh, people on the boards will translate into uh, a a better organization right so removing structures and practices that hold us back from flourishing the flourishing of all human talent fantastic yes. what what is your number for 2030 by the way <laughs> a 2030 is supposed to be 30 <laughs> okay yes all right 30 what why don't you spell it out percent oh 30 percent female representation on boards in oh. singapore right thank you thank you juni over thank to you you. Yong. your parting shot I talked about not being able to find a job for six months. Yes. It was not easy to find a pupil age or or internship when I graduated. I had my pupil master, Mr. Harry Lee, he took me in. When I couldn't find a job and I had completed my internship, he continued to allow me to intern until I found a job. He called his... um, uh, former pupil and said, if there's a job opening, remember Yong Yong. And um, I found my first job finally, and it was not a high salary, but I took it on because it gave me the break I needed. I needed to prove that I could do it. And I worked very, very hard. And then the pupil uh, who my master, pupil master called um, she rang me a few months later and she said, Yong Yong, I've got this other job here. It's a lot better than doing litigation. Would you like to come? And I said, no, I've just got a job. And he said, no, come. You've got to do this. At least you don't have to go to court. And so the story continues. You see? And I then became truly a lawyer. So what I want to say is, you've got to give people a chance, right? Start with internship. Move on to employment. If they're hungry enough and if they really want to, they will do very well and you will not regret it. It will make economic sense for you 
and it gives a sense of contribution and value to us. What I've always said to people uh, with disabilities, if Yong Yong can do it, so can you. <laughs> and all we need will be the community of all of us working together. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And to remember that somebody gave you a chance. That's think right. back. And so would you also give somebody else a chance? Yeah. Thank you so much for that inspirational note, Yong Yong. Over to you, Carrie. Hi. Okay. So we're talking about change making, right? Just to close um, up. Just to close up. Okay. Well, what I've gotten from my journey so far is, and we talked about soft skills earlier, is that uh, we need a, a mix of both soft and hard. And what I mean is we've got to be really strong and firm in our personal belief of the vision of the future that we want to create, that you have to pursue relentlessly. But in the process of pursuing this, when working with others, with stakeholders, with partners, it's so important that we are soft, that we be flexible and we be patient and we be adaptable to in the process of working with others. Um, and if we are confused by what it means to be having soft skills, I have one go-to thing that you can always do and always fall back on. And that is to remain curious, have curiosity, replace judgment in any given moment that you encounter challenges with others. And then I think naturally, when you're curious, you will discover things uh, and also discover the solutions to them quite naturally. So um, I think that would be that would be uh, my take. That being curious makes one a good collaborator, and collaboration creates change. Thank you for that. Uh, I think this forum has been really chicken soup for the soul, but also has a very hard edge to it, which is that uh, if we choose to take the time to sit, uh, we will uncover the treasure within each of us, which is which makes good business sense to really find the human capital and talent that is uh, out there to be uh, nurtured and developed. And it's good for business development, good for uh, a sense of corporate um, loyalty and commitment, which is what uh, accounts for business success. Thank you so much for sharing your stories, your views, your philosophies, and audience, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us today, but also uh, taking the time to join us at the two other forums that uh, we presented thus far. Uh, please fill in the feedback form that uh, is available so that we can uh, improve what uh, we uh, um, uh, present to you, uh, audience, that uh, it's not just food for thought, but really, uh, you know, ideas for to act upon. And, uh, you know, of course, our panelists sharing that we can turn our beliefs into action and reality. Um, so with that, we, uh, let me uh, wish you all a very good evening and to take the first step to be the change that you want to see and want to see happen in Singapore going forward from now till 2030. Thank you and goodbye for now. <laughs>